Yeah, I mean, it's with with a novel. That's the great part about it, right? It's like instant gratification because you once you publish it and once it's available, you know, someone else has the opportunity to read it, right? And so I'm not, you know, relying on anyone else's time frame. I'm not relying on anyone else's budget or interests or anything. It's like, you know, it's available. Someone wants to read it, they can read it. If they don't want to read it, they they don't need to read it, right? But but it's out there and you're not beholden to anyone else's um, restrictions. Friends, my name is Steve, and I'm here today with LJ Doherty. He's the author of Beasts of the Caliber Lodge, and of course, now Primal Reserve that just got released a few days ago, right? About a week ago. Yep. 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 Awesome. So thanks for uh, thanks for coming by to chat. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, come on and talk with you. Yeah, it's always fun to get to know people and hear their stories, and it's a good time. So I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, of course. So um, I guess let's start with The Beast of Caliber Lodge. Uh, is that your first book that you've written? Yeah, Beast of Caliber Lodge uh, is my first book. I put it out last January, uh, so January 21. Um, and uh, the um, so it's been out just over a year now. And that was really my, not just my first book, but my first intro into any sort of publishing or anything like that. Mm. Um, my first, uh, I mean, I've written things ever since I was a little kid, right? Stories and, and whatnot. Um, but most of my time had, prior to writing Beast of the Caliber Lodge was all um, screenwriting. Um, oh, wow. Because uh, filmmaking is, is one of my passions. And so I've been doing screenwriting for years. Um, and Beast of the Caliber Lodge, initially, I had written as a script. Um, was one of the scripts that I had written. And, um, you know, most of my screenplays um, were written in a way where they were like low budget, right? Um, because my intent was, hey, if I can get at least some money, a little bit of a budget, you know, I could shoot an indie film. Um, and I did. I, I have shot one feature. Um, oh. So, but when I wrote Beast of the Caliber Lodge, it was pretty different than everything I had written prior to that because it's not small budget whatsoever um it's it's a it's a big story big set pieces it's a it's a period piece it takes place um in the 1960s um it's a creature feature right so it's like got everything going against it to keep it in a small budget <laughs> um and uh a friend of mine um who's also an author uh cameron rubik um who i grew up with um, and he's been writing novels, slasher novels is what he writes. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with him. Um, he's been publishing for, for years at this point. Um, and he had said, you know, you need to turn this into a novel, um, because you can't, you can't do this story the way you want to do it in, you know, in 90 pages, right. Or a 90 minute film, even if you, um, uh, were to get it produced or whatever sometime down the road, like you really should do a novel form as well to really um, showcase the characters and the setting, everything like um, adequately. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, he had said that years ago and I, I thought about it and then, you know, um, 
and several film projects that were lined up, several film projects fell through, um, which is the way of the world in indie film, right? Um, you you get a crew and a cast and um, everything on board, and you know at the last minute that money didn't pull through, you know, and and that's just the way of it sometimes. A lot of times for indie filmmakers, um, and so at that point I was like, you know what, I'm gonna give this novel thing a shot, um, and that's when I started working on um piece um in the prose form and i worked on it um you know little at a time um maybe over nine months uh to a year um before putting it out um and as soon as i put it out and released it um you know i i got a lot of positive uh feedback on it um and uh you know i was like you know what I'm, i need to do another one um, and now it's just kind of snowballed from there. So, um, I, you know, the writing in prose form is for me just as enjoyable as, as doing the screenwriting. So how, what was that experience like to, to take it from a, from a script to uh, a novel? Was that a weird transition for you at first? Um, for sure. For sure. Um, you know, when you're writing a screenplay, it's kind of like, some people might disagree with this, but it's not really a piece of literature, right? Like it's a, it's a skeleton of what is going to become a film. Um, and so it's, you know, it's told in, you know, present tense, it's very minimalistic on descriptions. Um, and, you know, because you're relying on not just like physical descriptions, but descriptions of what people are doing a lot of times and how they're, reacting to things because that's right the director's job on set and the actor's job is to um bring across what the characters are are feeling um and so all that really gets left out in a screenplay and so translating it from a script to a novel um i had to add all that in right i had to make sure that that was coming across to the reader um and and really turn it into uh something more than just a skeleton of a story. Hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Uh, so from a, so for instance, so Beast of the Caliber Lodge, let me see, it's, it is about 230 pages or so. Uh, yeah. So if you, if you go from a, from a script, how much longer would the novel or what, how short would the script be for a book? That's about 230 pages. How how long would that script be? How much, how much did you have to add to fill in those blanks for the reader? Um, quite a bit. I mean, a, as a comparison, so I just finished um, about two months ago uh, translating another screenplay of mine into a novella, and I did it in a very different way um, than I did with Beast of the Caliber Lodge. I tried to keep it as similar to um, the you know 90-page or 100-page script so that it felt like it, when you're reading it, it feels like you just watched a 90 minute film, right? And mm -hmm. so I wrote it in present tense, just like it's, the script is written, um, it, it's first person perspective. Um, I mean, there's definitely description and, and more so than in the script, but um, I try to keep it as, as minimalistic and as like quick, fast, like rapid fire as possible. Um, so it's a very different type of, um, book than Beast of the Caliber Lodge as far as that goes. Um, and it ended up being lengthwise. It, I think right now, um, before I've 
uh, you know, done a final edit on it. So it's with beta readers at the moment. Um, I think right now it's like about 120 pages or so. Um, and so I would say, you know, I might trim it down another 10, 15 pages. So it will probably come out about the same length, right? Um, as, as the script and pages. Um, but obviously like a screenplay uh, page is, you know, much more sparse than, you know, you don't have the, the narrative going all the way across the uh, um, six by nine page or five by eight or whatever you're printing in. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I forget yeah. that. Because I, I, as a reader, I always think of books as page numbers. And I know, um, mm -hmm. you know as a writer, you think of it as word counts, probably. So, yeah, that was another weird thing for me when I was like first learning and, and looking at translating beasts into a novel. I would be asking my my buddy and saying, um, so how many pages? Like, what what makes sense? He's like, it. I can't really tell you because he's like, I write in like manuscript form to begin with. And so that's not you know, manuscript page is not going to translate to, you know, the printed page, like for it, you got to look at word count. I'm just like, I don't know how to wrap my head. Yeah. So it, that, that was weird because in it, with a screenplay, it's very, uh, it's black and white, right? Because, um, essentially like one page in a screenplay equals one minute of screen time. Um, there's exceptions, right? Like you're writing gladiator or something and it says like a battle ensues, right? That battle <laughs> might be like 20 minutes long, but, you know, one page of dialogue is, is one page of dialogue on, on the screen or one minute of dialogue on the screen. Um, and so, and cause you need that, right? If a producer is going to look at it and say, Hey, like, um, you know, how long is this going to be? How much is it going to cost or whatever? And like, when you're looking, when, when you're shooting the film and scheduling it and breaking it out by how much can you do, um, shoot each day, like it has to be that black and white thing. So there is no, uh, it's this many word count or this many pages. It's like, no, this is, it's either this or it's that, if that makes yeah. sense. Oh, interesting. So now that you've gone through the experience of taking a script that you had that you were just kind of waiting on and trying to get uh, to produce a movie with it, now that you've converted that to a novel and you've been able to get it out for people to enjoy, are you hooked on that On that now? Is that because it must be frustrating to write a script or a story and have it just sit and kind of like, because you want to share with everyone and Sure. Uh, is how what how is that outlet different? Because it's more in your hands than it is so many other people to decide whether or not to start to create a movie. Yeah, I mean it's with with the novel. That's the great part about it, right? It's like instant gratification because you once you publish it, once it's available, you know someone else has the opportunity to read it, right? And so I'm not you know, relying on anyone else's time frame. I'm not relying on anyone else's budget or interests or anything. It's like, you know, it's available. Someone wants to read it, they can read it. If they don't want to read it, they they don't need to read it, right? But but it's out there and you're not beholden to anyone else's um, restrictions, which is really cool. And that was the other fun thing about writing Beasts of the Caliper Lodge is I'm not, as soon as I'm not thinking about, um, like I said, the constraints of filmmaking with budget and everything, I can make it as big and crazy and wild as I want. And I did, right? Like it's got the crazy set pieces. It's got crazy action scenes, you know, crazy horror. Um, and it, it was just a really enjoyable experience um, writing it because of that. So what was your, what was the experience like getting it published? Was that strange? To, what, how, what was that experience like to take it from, after you finished the novel to getting it published 
What's the, what was the most surprising thing for you with that process? So I self-published it. Um, and so I, you know, that process, it was just learning how it works, right? Like, um, you know, working with a cover designer and figuring out, you know, all the, I guess all the boring stuff, right? Like how do you, the, the formatting for uploading and all that stuff, you know, um, luckily for me, like I knew a couple of people who had already put out some books. And so I, ha I was able to kind of pick their brains and ask questions and everything. Um, because I know for, for self-publishing, like if you don't have someone to go to, to ask them those questions, um, you know, KDP or whatever you're using is, isn't the most user friendly for someone doing it for the first time. Um, so, um, I was very thankful to, you know, have a, a source to go to and, you know, um, pick the brain. I, I love, uh, self-published books with, uh, you know, there's so many great stories that are being told in self-pub. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's hard to keep up. <laughs> for sure. So I, I mean, my, my, uh, I, I don't read a lot. I just, I'm a slow reader and, um, and between, trying to find time for my writing and then balance it with reading. Um, you know, I don't, I don't get a lot read, but, um, I would say probably 95% of what I read now is, you know, Indian and self pub, um, books now. Um, and I found that there are so many great authors and there's so much out there, especially, you know, in the horror community, um, that it, it's, it's wild that the, a lot of these authors aren't big five published. Right. Yeah. Um, because I've read a lot and like comparably, like they're just as good, you know, they're, they're, if, if not better sometimes, like from some of the stuff that I've read, um, from the notable publishing houses. Um, and so I really hope, and I'm, I know that some people have broken through and I'm sure that a lot more will, but I really hope that a lot more of these people that I've read and, um, you know, follow on social media and have had an opportunity to experience their writing. I really hope that they continue to, um, you know, move forward and get an opportunity to maybe get published and seen by more people, because I guess that's what it is. Right. Um, yeah. that's, that's what you have is, is more exposure through yeah. one of those publishing houses. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's so many great, so many great books out there. It's, it's crazy how much, how much is out there. And you mentioned the artwork. Uh, I love the artwork on it, on the, on the covers. I wanted to ask you about how you, how you went about choosing the artwork and it's just, it looks like the same artist. Is it the same artist? So Beast of the Caliber Lodge, I think the version that you were holding up, that's the very original cover. So I ran that cover for the first year it was out. Um, and that cover is done by Luke Newman. He's uh, a buddy of mine. He's a fantastic artist. Um, and uh, I worked side by side with him kind of designing that um, with what I wanted. And he was very patient with me on like all the, all the little details. And when you look at that version of the book, like it's a wraparound cover and you know, the, it's really cool. It's got the mountain landscape and every, there's so many layers to it. It's very, um, really well designed in my opinion. Um, and uh, so, and then right before I released Primal Reserve, um, which was just a couple weeks ago, like you mentioned, um, you know, I had a, a cover done for that and uh, by a gentleman, his name is Johnny Wise. Um, he lives in uh, Bristol, I think. Um, and I really wanted something very pulpy looking, very throwback 60s. Um, and he came up with this brilliant cover for um, Prime Reserve. And I was like, 
I need to have him do a cover for Beast of the Caliber Lodge as well because they're in the same series. And so um, I really wanted uh, to, you know, have them look great side by side and look, have them look like they were, like I said, part of the same series. So it's a visual thing for the reader and anyone like scrolling through and looking at it. Um, and so Beast has a new cover as of January, um, which is uh, just as cool as, as the one Luke did, um, just a different type of style. So um, yeah, for sure. Uh, but that um, I think, for me, like covers are so important. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've heard it said plenty of times. I know you have, you've probably said it like just the saying of like, don't judge a book by its cover, but like you do. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I know that I do, like I'm looking at all these indie books and self-published books and seeing like, I have to pick that up. Like, I don't even know what it's about. I saw that image and like, it, it at least gets me to click on it. Right. Right. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that, um, my covers were like that, um, as best as, you know, to my ability. Um, and I think that I pulled that off. I think that they're pretty striking covers and, um, I'm, I'm really happy with them. Um, and also like, I wanted to make sure that they convey really clearly what the book is, right? Like, I think you can pick up Primal Reserve and, um, see that it's, a wild book, right? You can see that it's fun. You can see that it's, um, you know, going to be more of an adventure horror. At, you know, I call it espionage horror is, is what I call it. Um, but I wanted to make sure that that like, it, like a movie poster, right? It, you should be able to walk down the, the hallway in the theater and be like, oh, I got to see that one next. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, the covers are very important. And uh, for for Beasts of the Caliber Lodge, what is, what is the book about? What's what what are we in? Yeah. Um, so Beasts of the Caliber Lodge is like I said, I I term it espionage horror. So um, kind of a blend of old school sixties um, espionage or spy thriller meets creature feature. So the basic plot of the book is it's about a team of Nazi hunters um, and they are um you know looking for escaped war criminals in the 60s uh the you know it kind of spans the first you know little section of the book takes place in south america um where a lot of nazis fled after the war um to argentina and places like that um and then the book really kicks into gear when they get a lead that this particular nazi that they've been hunting is going to be attending an elite hunting lodge um, expedition in Alaska. And so our main character, Jimmy, he has to kind of go in undercover as if he's one of these wealthy elite uh, people on this hunting trip. Um, and he goes to this lodge to identify whether or not their lead is correct. And this is indeed the guy that they're looking for. Um, and when he gets there, he realizes that it's not just a regular hunting lodge, that they're hunting something very specific. Um, and they've had to sign all these non-disclosure agreements and, you know, all, all sorts of, you know, confidentiality stuff. And he realizes what they're going to be hunting are Sasquatch. Um, and so that's where that creature feature element comes in. Um, so it's about, you know, him trying to prove it's this guy that he's been looking for and at the same time stay alive during this crazy, um, you know, snowy frostbitten expedition up the mountain where they're hunting Bigfoot and multiple Bigfoot. Yeah. 
That that does sound like a good movie. <laughs> if, if it ever comes to be, that sounds great. But I'm excited to read it. Yeah, um, thank you. Yeah, it sounds really good. Yeah, I read the synopsis and it it sounds kind of bonkers, and then when you it sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, and that's what you know. That's what I was going for. It's fun. You know, it's not. Um, I've had people say, "So is it like? Is it uh, is it silly? Is it goofy? Is it comedy?" Because when I describe it, when and and when you look at it, like I can see why you might think that. Um, but I I tell in a way I wrote it in a way where I'm I'm doing it straight, right? Um, I mean, it is crazy, it is wild, it is bonkers, but it's not um, it's not like told in a like I said a comedic tone, mm-hmm. because like like I said, it it's it's a crazy creature feature aspect, but really the primary point of the story is is the espionage piece is the nazi hunting piece um and so it's it's got more of a you know suspense thriller tone with that part of the story um you know kind of uh, you know marathon man or boys from brazil or anything like that where it's that cloak and dagger type of like you know who, you, you don't know who you can trust and and that sort of thing um and so the you know the the villains of the story, um, while the the Bigfoot are you know they're they're animals and they're um, very territorial, um, they're not necessarily the villains, right? I mean, there's they kill plenty of people and there's plenty of blood and, and gore and cinematic ultra violence, um, but the villains are are the humans and and the uh, not just this Nazi that they're looking for, but but the other kind of. Um, wealthy elite people that he comes across at, at this lodge. And what were your inspirations for the story originally? What kind of inspired you to write the story? Um, you know, when I, like I said, it started as a script and um, it, it really stemmed from, I, other than Harry and the Hendersons, which is, <laughs> you know, is a completely different type of Bigfoot. Um <laughs> movie i i really hadn't seen many that i liked right or that i felt had been done to the best of you know that that character that that creature's um potential um and it really just started with that like i'm gonna write like the the best bigfoot film ever and blah 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 blah. i'm gonna do it completely different and something that no one's ever done before and do it in a way that is original and unique and blend it um kind of do like a mixed genre thing. And so it really came out of, and really all my stories from my scripts to my novels now, they come out of a place where I, I feel like I need to write it and create it because I want to read or, or watch it. Um, I think all my stuff has. And it come, I come to this idea of like, man, I'm, you know, I'm scrolling through Netflix or, or Prime or, or whatever, HBO, and Shudder and saying like, man, I wish I could find a movie like this. I, I want to watch something like this tone and this vibe or whatever. And then that's when it clicks like, oh, okay, well, I don't see it. I guess I should write it. Hmm. Yeah. It's a lot more than what I do because I just complain. So I don't know how to write it. <laughs> that's, uh, that's cool. So uh, when did you start screenwriting? Um, I started screenwriting when I was in high school. Um, I think in my sophomore or junior year of high school and um you know learn learn the formatting and and all those ins and outs and um i don't know i think i've written a total of like since then i don't know 
upwards of 30 scripts or something and maybe and the, i mean and most of them were terrible right because i was still learning right it was like um it, most of them you know when i was in high school were um just blatant ripoffs of of other films and everything and um but that's how you find your voice i think when you're learning to write or at least that's how i did is like you emulate the things uh other writers other filmmakers whatever other creatives um that you like their work right and it takes you a while or it took me a while to realize like why do i like this person's work what is it about it right and you start pulling little bits and pieces um and those little bits and pieces that you pull from different creatives um help you start to you know, focus in on what your voice is. And because, hey, yeah, you like this guy's work over here, but you don't like all of it. You like this specific piece. And so you collect all these little pieces and then pretty soon, like you're left with something completely different. Um, and and that's when I started, I think, getting better at my writing and finding my voice. And, um, and so I'd say out of those 30 whatever uh, scripts that I've written, you know, um, up until I published Beast, probably the last four that I had written before publishing, I would say that I think they were really good. Um, I mean, I had a couple in, during that time around 2016 that um, I had gotten into some of the really big screenwriting competitions and stuff like that. And kind of getting that recognition and that feedback um, was huge, right? It's the same as, um, you know, when someone gets on Amazon or on Goodreads and or DMs you and says, hey, I really enjoyed your book, right? Like someone who you don't know, someone who has no reason to, you know, bullshit you and like, you know, just be honest with you. It's when you start getting feedback, good and bad, because I, I mean, I've gotten some negative stuff too, um, but good and bad that you realize, hey, like people are actually reading my stuff. People actually are, I'm eliciting an emotion, whether positive or negative in this person. And I think like, if someone can hate your stuff, someone can love your stuff. I think the worst is like if someone is like completely indifferent about it, right? And like, and and has nothing to say. It's like when you walk out of a movie and you look at the person next to you and you're like, what'd you think? Yeah, it was good. Yeah, it was good. Did you like it? Yeah, I liked it. And then that's where the conversation stops. Like, that's, you know, that's the worst. I, I would rather come out of reading something or watching something and be like, I absolutely love that. Or I really hated that. And like, because then it, there's a discussion for it, right? Like, why did you really hate it? Why did you really love it? Right. It elicited some emotion for some reason. And that reason is because I think that that creative did their job, right? Like if you can just get someone to feel a certain way, even if it's not the way you intended them to feel like, I think as a creative, you've done your job. Hmm. That's a good point. And when you first started getting negative feedback, when you started screenwriting or writing your novel, how did you, how did you deal with that? Was that difficult to kind of adjust to? Um, no, I, I think that like, I mean, I've got a thick skin and I think that that's something I learned really early on, even before screenwriting, just even, you know, I did art for, you know, as, as a kid and stuff like that as well. And like, I learned pretty early on and had heard a lot of other people just say it like, if you're going to be in this industry, like you got to have a thick skin. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to get upset or hurt about, you know, one person or hundred people, whatever that don't like your stuff, like it, it's going to be really difficult to maintain moving forward. Um, 
like I said, my, my reaction or like as best as I try to take it is that like I was just saying, all right, I did my job. You know, I had somebody, one of my favorite comments that I got from, and this was from one of the competition com screenplay contest um, judges about one of my scripts. Um, actually the one that I have turned into the novella that I'll going to be releasing later this year um, said it was absolutely deplorable. <laughs> so like that's, you know, um, that word like i was like man like not not bad right like she, she wasn't saying my my writing was bad she was saying like the story and the characters and like what happened and, and everything like that was deplorable and so i was like all right that's <laughs> i love i love that um you know and i the i had other uh, some of the other judges you know said the exact opposite right and so um, it's polarizing and I feel like that's when, that's when you know, you've got something right. And I see other, other authors and stuff, um, in the self pub and indie world, um, who've gotten that same type of thing, like with their books, right. You, you have like all these like glowing five-star reviews and then you have like a bunch of like one-star reviews and you're like, that's gotta be a book worth picking up, yeah. you know? <laughs> Yeah, because you're right about that response. You're getting a response, so that's it's good to have that. And it is, it is, it would be disappointing to just have some. Eh, it was fine. Yeah. Yeah. Something, some kind of feedback. Yeah. And speaking of feedback, you uh, mentioned that your your novellas with beta readers. How do you choose beta readers? What do you look for, or do you have a set group that you go to? Um. Yeah. I, so I have a set group. So I have two guys that I I've known for um most of my life um one of them is cameron rubik who i mentioned who's an author as well and an, and another um buddy of mine and they're not the only beta readers i use but i always use those two on everything that i write um they've read everything i've written um ever uh so all my scripts my my novels everything and so um one of the reasons i i like having them read my stuff is they look at it, these two guys in two completely different ways. One of them is like really analyzing it from like Cameron looks at things like, Hey, is the pacing good? Are the characters good? Is, are there, you know, is there uh, the story structure work? Like, you know, like he looks at it from the creative side and the side that like a rear enjoyability side. Um, and then the other guy is really looking at like, are there plot holes? Is your, um, am I catching any like grammar, like almost like an editor would. Um, and then also like, you know, bringing up a few other things. And so the biggest thing is I know these guys are being honest with me because they've told me they don't like something as, as often as they've told me that they like it. Um, and that's really hard to find, especially if you know them, right. And you have a relationship with them, you know, and you're friendly or whatever, like, you need to, in my opinion, you need to give it to someone who's going to be honest with you. Um, and I think that a lot of people are afraid to give somebody, you know, criticism um, because they're afraid that they're going to offend them or hurt their feelings or, or something like that. Um, and so that's what I try and do. I try and give it to people that I know are not going to be afraid to, to be honest with me. That would be tough to find. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be tough. And standing out, it, you know, with with so many great indie books and so many pe so many people writing now, 
how do you stand out on how do you promote your your work in a way that uh, you know kind of gets traction? Um, I mean, like promoting my work is is pretty much all social media and word of mouth. Mm -hmm. um, I I try and stay active on Instagram and um, on Twitter, um, and you know, I it I guess that's what I try and do, but I don't know that that's what is getting people to pick up my book. Maybe it is. I don't know because like it, it's so strange. Like I'll do a post or something like that, and I'll have, you know, one person, you know, or zero people, you know, uh, pick up my book that day. And then randomly I'll do another post, the same type of post, and I'll sell, you know, a, a handful of books. And so it's, I, I haven't figured out like, hey, what, maybe there's a right time of day or a right day. To, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just try and um, put stuff out there that um, reminds people I have books. Um, I try and make it visual. I try and make it um, my post fun and, and, and that's it. I, I mean, to be honest with you, I've, most of the people who've picked up my book have probably picked it up because other readers and writers have said something about it. It's, it's probably not my post. It's probably the posts of other people who have, um, commented on it, left a review on it, um, said they liked the cover, whatever, right? Like, and that's a really cool thing about um, the horror community and on social media and stuff like that. I, you know, for me, it's been a really positive experience. And there's so many people out there who are just excited for other people. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm definitely one of them. I'm always excited when I see authors I know or new authors release something. And it's like, man, another book, man, I got to pick that up. You know, I got to read three more books. So I have uh, room on my shelf or whatever. But um, I, I, I think just the excitement that you can elicit in other people really goes a long way. Um, and, it, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure that that's probably the majority of um, the luck that I've had or the, the success that I've had is um, from other people taking the time and taking an interest to say something about it or comment on it. You mentioned the horror community, on, especially on Twitter. It's, uh, it's very supportive. There's so many great really friendly and supportive people there. I wouldn't know sure. that because they write these really dark books and <laughs> they're all really super nice people. It's really strange. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I mean, I've met, met, right? Like, so, uh, at least, you know, uh, virtually met um, so many great people. Um, and, and again, like hearing people's comments um, when you don't know these people, right? And they have no reason not to be honest because it's like, even if it was someone who's like, uh, I don't want to say something negative, like they could just then not say something. Right. But instead I've had a lot of people, you know, reach out or, um, you know, want, want to share stuff or, or whatever. Like it, it's just been, um, it's been really nice. And, and also like when I've had questions about things, like I'll, I'll reach out to other authors. Hey, do you mind if I ask you about this or can you show me how you did this? Or, um, I was having like a, uh, technical issue with publishing uh, Primal Reserve. Um, I don't know what it was on. Maybe with the ebook or something like that on, on Vellum. I don't know. But anyway, so I reached out to David Sodergren and um, was like, hey, like, really sorry to bug you, but I know you use this program as well. Like, I cannot get it to, like, export. Like, can you just tell me 
because I feel I feel so silly. Like I know that I'm just missing it, and like I've looked at these forums, I can't find anything. And it, you know, he'll respond back on Twitter whenever because he's in Scotland, so 12 hours later or whatever. Oh yeah, you just need X, Y, and Z. All right, cool, thank you. And it saved me so much time and work, um, just because you know someone is has no issue saying like, yeah, here's how you do it. Um, so I try and reciprocate that as with other authors or anyone who, uh, you know, has a need that I can help with as much as possible as well. So for, for newer authors that haven't published their first book yet, what, what advice would you offer to them? Um, as far as publishing goes? Yeah, publishing or maybe uh, finding beta readers or an editor or, you know, the process of getting the book from what I have now to being published. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think I think making sure like you get the book uh, in front of some people who, like I said, are going to be honest with you and um, be open to their feedback and um, be open to reassessing your work after you've received that feedback. Um, I think that also taking the time to make sure your book is as ready as you want it to be um, and not like rushing anything um, and not uh, putting too much pressure on yourself mm. as far as like how much content you're having to put out. And, you know, cause you can see like there's some, there's some authors who are pumping out, you know, two, three, four or five books a year. And I'm sure you could feel like as a new author, um, oh my God, I'm not keeping up. I'm not staying relevant, right? Like I have to put out something else. And um, I, so I guess I would say like, try not to get caught up in any of that. Um, I would say, you know, as, as much other indie and self pub um, work that you can get your hands on, you know, get your hands on it, read it. Um, I would suggest um, putting some uh, strong effort and, you know, um, maybe monetary assets behind making a good cover, whether if, if it's something that you can't do by yourself, you know, really reaching out to some artists or designers or whatever um, your book needs um, to make sure that it looks professional. Um, yeah, I guess that. That's what I would say. Yes. Are there any uh, resources you would recommend for for new writers who want to improve their craft? Um, I don't know. Uh, not necessarily. Um, I use. Uh, I think you, you and I were just chatting just very briefly. Um, but uh, something I've been using recently for kind of like posts and stuff like that, like social media. Um, uh, adver not advertising, but, you know, promotional stuff for my own thing is Canva. Um, it's just so easy to use. Um, it's user-friendly. It's, it's not like using Adobe or anything like that. And you can, you know, pump out some really good looking stuff in, you know, a matter of minutes. Um, so I would say that, but, um, that's probably it. Hmm. And when you write, do you listen to music? Good question. I don't. So oh. I, I, I put, I put films on, put movies on. Um, but I cannot listen to music. I've tried it. It totally, I can't do it. I know that a, a lot of people do that, but like, I actually have to have not, not the entire like session while I'm writing, but I've got to like put on movies that are like in the same tone as what I'm working on. 
Um, and with my books, I can change like scene to scene, right? Especially when I'm writing something like Primal Reserve, where you're jumping back and forth between kind of a James Bond or Indiana Jones kind of like uh, espionage type feel, and then going into like that creature from the Black Lagoon style creature feature. Um, so like I'm I'm not even watching necessarily like whole films like start to finish. Um, I usually pick you know three or four movies um, that really fit that tone, and I watch them on repeat, kind of intersplice them. Um, every time I sit down to work on that particular project. So like, like with Primal Reserve, I, it was um, uh, Jaws and Apocalypse Now were my two big ones. And like, I like, I can't even tell you how many times I uh, watched those during working on that novel. Wow, that's interesting. I, I think you're the first one to say that you watched in the background when you're writing. That's interesting. Yeah, they've got to be movies I've seen before. Like, I can't put something I've never seen before. Otherwise, I'm either going to totally miss the movie or I'm going to completely stop writing to watch the movie. So it's got to be something I've seen, I'm familiar with. Um, but generally, like, uh, that's not difficult because I like using my inspiration from, you know, other things I, I grew up watching that I love to kind of, you know, that plant that initial seed for the story anyway. So Interesting. And I... I saw your uh, your video with Angel over at Voices from the Mausoleum and your top yeah. five bunch of horror movies. And uh, there's a couple on there that I wanted to to talk to you about. Uh, the first one was It Follows, and I love that movie. I wanted yeah, to kind great. of thoughts on that one. What what stands out to you from, from that movie? Um, it's just so original, so creative. That movie. Um, I love the the world building, the lore that they've created. Um, around that that creature um and i love the uh i love the tone of that movie right it's a fun film um it's an easy watch film like it's it's enjoyable it's not super heavy it's not depressing um it's not about like grief and you know what i mean like it's it's a it really at its like core it's a it's a slasher movie right like that's how they set it up um and I love how like uh, ambiguous it is across the board, right? You don't know what time of year it is. Like the weather's constantly changing. I think I mentioned when I was talking with Angel, like it's so, like during the daytime, like the characters are wearing long sleeves and jackets. And then at night they've got like hardly anything on or they're swimming in the pool. Like it, the, the climate doesn't make sense. It doesn't track, right? Like they've got the... Um, you know, modern day cars, but then they've got like, you know, old cars that look like they're brand new. Um, you know, that nobody has a cell phone in the movie except for the girl in the very first scene. And we're not even sure if that, like chronologically where that fits in the story, right? Um, that little prologue piece. But then you've got someone who had the, the gal who has like the little e-reader, the little clamshell e-reader, which is like one of the coolest like um, movie like props I think of all time. Um, and people comment on that a lot. Um, but it's just a really cool story. It's a really cool take on, um, on the, on the topic. It's a really cool way to do a slasher without rehashing 
kind of the normal tropes of a, of a slasher or not, not even, I mean, it's got similar tropes, but not rehashing like this, you know, the normal setting and the normal characters in a slasher. Yeah. I, I love that movie. It's, it's the little shell, the e-reader on the shell. It's such a, it's, it's such a small detail, but it, you remember it. Like you said, it's, yeah. it's only, you only see it for about 30 seconds or so, but it's one of the things that really sticks with you. And uh, another one of the movies you mentioned that I wanted to talk to you about the Alien franchise because mm-hmm. one of your movies. Uh, what are your thoughts on that franchise now, where it stands now? Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I I think it's it's definitely it's changed, right? Which is fine. Um, but it's you know it's it's taken a a turn from I think where the first four films were heading um and uh it's it's more focused it's focusing on things that i'm not as interested in um but and i i don't think the the new films are bad um but i i guess i'm just less interested in them um and i think they've gotten i think they maybe have lost some of the like horror and suspense that made the first four movies um, great. Um, I, th- I think that that's missing. And I mean, the creature feature movies, right? And um, it, when you no longer are afraid of the creature that's in the story, you know, something's wrong. And I think that that's, that's where it's at. And, it, and someone might say, well, you're not afraid of it anymore because it's been around for so long or people have seen it a million times. So like, but you know, that's not what it is because you can watch um, the original alien um, or, or any of the first three sequels. And like, they're still scary, right? Like they set up like those scenes um, perfectly. And even, even aliens, the, the second movie, which is more of a sci-fi action film than a sci-fi horror like that scene when you know they can they're using like whatever the tracking thing and they can the motion detectors and they realize oh my gosh they're above us like that's and they you know look up in the grate and they're all crawling at them like that's that's still scary right it's still good and um a lot of that comes from also the design of those creatures i think mm-hmm. and um the you know using hr geiger's original um you know, the artwork from his Necronomicon and stuff like that and um, not making them look humanoid, right? Making them look more bestial and like more animal-like. Um, and uh, they really look like a cross between two things to me, which are like two of people's biggest fears are bugs and snakes. And like, they really look like a like a blend of those two things, which is like just makes it even worse right to as, as from a viewer like from a horror standpoint i think yeah so what are your thoughts on alien 3 but what do you stand on on that film have you seen the assembly cut um yeah so i've seen so i i i like alien 3 um i don't like it as much as the first two films and i don't like it as much as the fourth film even mm. um and i know that not everyone's a big fan of the fourth film but i like it um Alien 3 is cool. Um, it's, uh, it was an interesting location to set that type of film in, but it was original. Um, and I think that they did a good job of taking it out of kind of that, that spaceship and like really cold, um, 
feeling um, set up and putting it like with that blast furnace and everything's warm and orange and um, it's got that hue to it and uh, the characters that, that are there in the prison and everything like that. I, I think it works and I, and I like it. Um, it's uh, it's definitely not my favorite David Fincher film of, of his, uh, of all his stuff. And I, I know he feels the same way, um, but you know, that's, that's a movie business when, you know, you get too much interference from too many people. Right. And that's that versus writing the book, right. Where it's just you. Um, and you get to make all those decisions, good or bad, it falls on you. Um, but I think, uh, sometimes films just get too collaborative, um, to its detriment. And I think that that's one of them. Um, and I've seen, you know, I've, I've, I've seen stuff and, um, I know, I know that, uh, Fincher's original, the, the original script that they were going to use is, is floating around out there somewhere. And I hear it's pretty different. And the same thing with Alien Resurrection. I, I, I know that that's mm. the case too, um, that that was pretty heavily changed. But um, yeah, I, I, I like it. I think it's, like I said, it's it's probably the worst of the first four films, but I like it a lot better than everything that's come after that. Mm. How do you, what, what are your thoughts on it? I, I, I saw it in the theater. I don't know how was but i remember being i remember liking the movie um but as i got older i, I thought it's probably my least favorite until the assembly cut i saw the assembly cut and it's it's you know it's kind of messy it's not it's not polished but i mm-hmm. i like assembly cut a lot i think the assembly cut was really good and i think they went they they were trying to go back to what you mentioned about kind of a um you know keeping it scarier and getting away from the kind of the high like the technology it was more grounded and it's a prison there's no weapons mm-hmm. uh, there's one of them there wasn't a thousand of them like in aliens so i think they tried to go back to that unstoppable force that you can't uh you know you're helpless against it or you have to get really creative to to kill it so i think they're onto something but i think the studio from what i've seen and read is the studio kind of interfered a lot but yeah um i am curious i am surprised that you like the fourth movie so i want to hear what you think about that one yeah, um, I, I really don't get the hate that it gets, to be honest. Like, I, I think it's a good film. I think it's, um, I mean, I, I love a lot of the actors that they brought in there. Uh, Michael Wincott, who um, is is in there, is one of my favorite actors. Like, uh, you know, he's a character actor. He hasn't done a ton, but, like, all his parts are, like, so memorable. Um, even in the movies that he's been in that are bad, like, he's always consistently good and memorable in them. Um, you know, he, he plays uh, um, uh, Gia Gisborne in the um, Kevin Costner Robin Hood, right? Which I, I don't think would be a controversial thing to say that it's not a great movie. Um, <laughs> but he's fantastic in it with Alan Rickman. Um, and, uh, you know, the the 90s Three Musketeers movie um, with uh, Kiefer Sutherland and Tim Curry and stuff. He's, he's in there and he's one of the main villains with Tim Curry. And he's so good. He's so scary. He's got like this incredible voice. Anyway, he's in there. So um, he's great. Ron Perlman's really good in it. Um, and it, it brought it back to, you know, they're on the ship again. Um, and uh, just kind of being in that trap confined space, same with alien three, like you're saying, like in the first film, it's like you, there's nowhere to go, right? You're, you're trapped in there with this thing. And, um, it's got some cool scenes. I love the scenes where the aliens are like in the water and they're swimming and chasing them. Um, like, I think that it was a, 
really beautifully shot movie. Um, the the ending of it where they've got like you know the alien baby hybrid creature like it's which is so disgusting looking it's so it's like shot so good um just beautiful like in a in a dark creepy way which is what i love um and i think a lot of that comes from um and i can't i just based on the director's name but he also made amelie um and the um french director i think um so like he kind of took that art house approach to shooting this big budget, like sci-fi creature feature, which I think really worked. Um, and, uh, I, and it stuck with the same tones or themes as the first three movies, which is something, again, they kind of lose a little bit after this, which is those first four films are really about motherhood. Yeah. Right. And in, in all its different forms, and it was a really good way to kind of wrap that up. Um, it may have been a little on the nose at some point in, in that particular film, but like, um, I think it worked and it fit and it's, it's a fun film and it, it, I don't know, it has all the things that I like, which is, you know, dark, you know, you know, ultra violent, um, fun, right. Not, not necessarily, you know, heavy and depressing. Um, and like pulling off, being able to do something that's, dark and scary and still have it be fun. Like if you can do that, like you sold me, like I'll, I'll watch it. I'll buy it, whatever. Um, and that's what I try and do in, in the first two books I've written as well. Like that's what I want it to be. I want it to be dark and intense and, you know, I want you to care about the characters um, when something might happen or does happen to them, but I also want it to be fun. Right. Um, I want it to be pulpy. Yeah. Interesting. I, I have seen some people come to the defense of, uh, Alien Resurrection. I think it's interesting. It's one of those movies that uh, you know everyone kind of disagrees about. But mm -hmm. it's, it's a fun conversation to be yeah. had. And have so you? People seen are talking. People talk about it, right? They're not just saying. Hmm. That's they're either like I, I hate that movie or I really like that movie. That's very true. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I think it's funny you mentioned that because I think some people with Prometheus and um, I forget the other follow up already Covenant. I think some people are kind of like, eh, that's fine. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I hardly remember anything about Alien Covenant. And I mean, I remember some things about Prometheus, but they're, they're kind of forgettable in my mind, right? Like, um, they don't have anything that made me think, like, oh, I have to watch that four more times, right? Or I have to see that scene again or talk, you know, like, I could talk about the the first four movies, um, you know, especially the first two. I could talk about like for forever, like about every scene and you know lines of dialogue and you know that sort of thing. I don't remember any lines of dialogue of you know the the later movies. I couldn't tell you. I don't know what the characters' names are. You know, I don't. Know. Yeah, um, all different feeling to them. Yeah. And I, I was excited though to see the you know where the space jockey came from and the ship and it wasn't yeah. It wasn't ship and it's all kind of a bummer i mean after so many years of of you know trying to figure it out and you're looking forward to it and then prometheus drops and you're like, well, I'm not yeah but then yeah. again i don't know if anything would really be would really scratch that itch after so many years of waiting yeah but have you seen the uh the blomkamp uh or i heard about the script and the ideas he had for alien 5 um I, I heard that he was going to do it um and then that ended up 
right kind of falling through but no i haven't seen read the script or any of that stuff oh. um last i heard as far as that franchise goes and i could be wrong but i don't think i am um i think noah holly who did the fargo tv series which is fantastic if you haven't seen it um i think he's attached um maybe with fx or something like that um to do a series uh in in that alien universe it's the last thing i heard like um i'm a big fan of his so i think that that could be interesting i mean fargo and alien pretty pretty different um but it's about right like the ability to uh tell a good story so yeah i think they're bringing it back to earth in modern day or something like that so check it out yeah Yeah, i'll I'll watch i'll complain but i'll watch yeah (laughs) and uh you know i think really scott is one of the people who kind of put a put his foot you know kind of stop that blomkamp thing from happening and I wanted to get your thoughts on his his remarks after uh, the last duel flopped about millennials. You know, they they can't pay attention, and it's all their fault because they have short attention spans. What what are your thoughts on that? I don't agree with it at all. Um, I think that I think you have a lot of people who are trying to figure out um, the changing landscape of a film. And they're throwing whatever they can as a reason for it, um, and and trying to demonize something, right? Like uh, it's because of this generation or their age or their attention span, or they don't care about story or characters, or people only want to see superheroes. Like I don't know. There, I think that that's not the case. I think it's I don't know what it is. I, I don't think that there is a problem. I think it's just a it's just a people are more comfortable watching things in a different way. Right. Um, I mean, I watched the last duel, um, but I watched it at, in my apartment. You know what I mean? Like at home on my TV, I didn't go to the theater to see it. And I didn't go to the theater, not because I didn't want to go to the theater. I didn't go to the theater to see that because it, it didn't it, it intrigue me enough to pay the money and, you know, use my time to go and see that film, you know, um, I went and saw the new James Bond movie that intrigued me, you know? Um, so like, it, I, I think part of it's content it's people's taste. And I think that like making a comment like that, like you're trying to, when you're trying to rationalize why people aren't going to see your movie, like, I think you might need to think like maybe your story or whatever, some part of your, you know, project isn't intriguing enough for the people you feel are not going to see it Hmm. like if someone doesn't go and see your movie maybe there's you know (laughs) something you could have done differently whether it's promotional wise or i I don't know maybe people just are not in the mood to see a true story set in medieval times i don't know i i liked it It was a good movie i thought it was good um but again i didn't go out of my way to see it i I waited until it was on hbo or max or whatever you know is there anything else on now okay we'll watch that yeah and you know you've you've written a ton of scripts how hard is it to get a script adapted to a movie it must be really tough yeah i mean really hard at least in my in my experience um it's there's just so much it's all about getting the right people on board and getting the money right and it's convincing people 
the right people to take a chance on something that there's very little um, possibility that's going to be successful, right? Like, it's not like real estate where you know you're going to have a return on it. Like, an investor might not have a return on a film. And that that goes with whether it's a small indie film or whether it's The Last Duel, right? Mm-hmm. They probably lost, you know, when when you're a filmmaker and you're making those comments about no one wins only movie, they probably lost movie money on that film, right? Otherwise, he'd probably keep his mouth shut, um, would be my guess. Because, um, like, hey, it made money. Everyone's happy. We're good. Um, it's, it's tough, especially for... Um, first time an independent filmmaker is like convincing somebody like that, you know what you're doing, convincing somebody to uh, really gamble with their money on something that they don't fully understand because the people who are financing films aren't necessarily creative people, right? They're not necessarily people who um, understand film or how any of it works, right? They're usually business people and business people want to know, What's the time frame for my return? What what percentage am I going to see back? What's the likelihood? What happens if I don't see return? Right, um, and it's it's finding a way to navigate that as a creative person that you have to really learn that business side of it, um, or find somebody who does right, um, which is that collaboration piece. Um, this is tough. It's tough. I mean, I mean, we were just saying like even um, uh, Neil Blomkamp or whatever like couldn't get that stuff his stuff made right and he's an established filmmaker um so it's hard um i mean i had um like i said the the novella that i have coming out later um that was probably the closest i've gotten to getting a film made professionally not independently um with a studio and stuff like that and it it looked like it was going really well for a little bit and you know a couple things happen and, and stuff falls through right and that's just the way of it and that's tough, really tough when it looks like, hey, you're going to get something that's really going to get made and really going to be successful. And you're, you know, the producers are actually talking to actors and stuff like that. Um, uh, that's, you know, and actors that you know and actors that you love and look up to, like from, you know, from a cinematic point of view, like you, you get really excited. Um, and then when it doesn't come to fruition, it's hard. Um, but then you just got to write something else and you got to try again or you got to, find another producer or whatever the case may be, but just kind of kind of roll with the punches and say, Oh, that sucks. Let's try again. Wow. Yeah. That must be really hard to get that close and then go through. But, um, so if, uh, if someone does invest in a movie and it does flop, they lose that money that they invested. Is that the risk they're taking? Um, I mean, I think that's, it's kind of a per case basis, but I guess like in, in really general terms. Yeah. I mean, like, um, yeah. And, and like, I think that it depends on what you consider a flop, right? Like people always refer to Waterworld, right. As like this massive flop. Um, I mean, it made its budget back and then some, but they consider it a flop because it didn't do X amount times its budget. Right. And so right. like, if, if you look at it in like movie studio terms, like, you know, they make sure that that no film on papers is successful, right? Because they don't want to pay out dividends to whether it's the writers or the actors or the whatever, right? And so, um, you know, that, that term flop is, is it's debatable what that means. Um, but I, I guess like in really simplistic terms, yeah, I think that if, if you invest in something and then there's no profit from it, 
then you're not getting that paid back, right? Um, which is really like in the independent world, like really how you have to break it down to somebody. Like, hey, we're asking for this much money. You are the first person paid back or the second person paid back or whatever the case may be. Um, and then once everybody's investments paid back, you get X percentage of every dollar that that you make, right? Is the like a basic way to go about it. Oh, okay. I see. So uh, whenever we talk movies, whenever I talk to mo- movies with someone, I have to ask what your opinion <laughs> on uh, an overpass the holiday season. But I wanted to ask you about Die Hard. If it's a, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? It's a big debate. Yeah, I think so. I think any, yeah, for sure. Well, I, I, we, I consider it a Christmas movie. Um, I think any film that takes place during Christmas is a Christmas movie. I don't know why no one's, no one is debating is Lethal Weapon a Christmas movie? You know what I mean? Because that takes place in Christmas. Um, you know, so I think any 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 movie, whether the storyline has to do with Christmas, if it takes place on during Christmas, is a Christmas movie. Eyes Wide Shut is a Christmas movie. You know, <laughs> um, anything that has a Christmas tree or lights in the background, um, it qualifies. You know, I I completely forgot Lethal Weapon was. Uh, during Christmas, until you just said it, I, one of those mm-hmm. things. No one ever debates that. You're right. <laughs> Another debate to be had for sure. But honestly, I, I don't. I I don't personally know anyone who says that Die Hard isn't a Christmas movie. Like I've never like met anyone who's like so Die Hard about it um, that they like are like upset that anyone would consider it a Christmas movie. So I'm glad I haven't met that person, but. Like so far, I I haven't had anyone argue the opposite. So, yeah, I was on the it's not a Christmas movie camp for a long time, but I think I'm really. I think I'm coming around to, you know, I think it's it's part of the plot, so it's kind of like I concede it's okay. I guess it is. I mean, I'm not diehard about. I'm not. I'm not. I wasn't ready to argue and fight over it. It's just like, well, I mean, it's it's not really. There's not really a Christmas feel to it, but I've been. I think I've heard enough people say it. It is a Christmas movie to to kind of change my tone on it. So. I mean, he leaves the note right on the guy that says, "You know, ho, ho, now ho. I have a machine gun." Ho ho ho! Right? So, like, you know, I guess there's no ho 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 in in uh, Lethal Weapon, but so maybe it is a step closer to. But yeah, there is a lot of Christmas trees, and I think the first scene in Lethal Weapon is a Christmas is in the Christmas tree lot or something like that. So well, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. the debate. So I wanted to ask you, is there a hobby that you were excited to try that you wanted to try, but when you tried it, you did not enjoy it? Um, I wanted to learn to play the mandolin. Um, and it's not that I didn't enjoy it, but uh, I never um, could find enough time, like commit enough time to do it. And I, so I guess it didn't interest me enough to make the time to do that um that's the first thing that that came to mind a mandolin well wow, a mandolin cool. yeah yeah do you play any other instruments uh no oh. no what, what was it about the mandolin that appealed to you i love irish folk music um and you know most of those songs have you know use a mandolin as like kind of like the primary instrument or one of the primary instruments i love how the mandolin sounds I love how the mandolin looks. It's just so unique looking. Um, you know, it's got, you know, double strings for each string. Um, 
I don't know, just very, it's kind of like the platypus of instruments in my mind. <laughs> um, it's just so strange. Um, so uh, I've always loved it. I love how it sounds. So I was like, oh, I'm going to try it. I'm going to get one. I'll learn how to do it. And this, that just never happened. It's just still it's sitting. I have one. It's just sitting in the, the case. Oh, you so, still have it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I, I keep telling myself I'm going to learn it at some point, but probably not. <laughs> Uh, there's a couple of questions before I let you go. There's a couple of questions I'd like to ask uh, if you get. And this, the first one's a new one that uh, I'll have to, to try out. So do you have any favorite family recipes? Um, favorite family recipes? Uh, I'm sure I do. Um, hmm. Not that I can think of off the top of my head. No. Yeah. Well, if you think of anything, do, let me know. do you have a favorite family recipe? No, it's funny because uh, I, was, I had a, a talk with Sarah uh, Sarah Chorn, and she said, "Well, you should ask this question because it's a really interesting question." I, there's a ton of great responses, and I I was thinking about it like I, I couldn't think of one either, but I, I can't think of anything really great. I mean, there's there's little things here and there, but nothing that really stands out as a yeah. family recipe. I mean, I I can't make a bowl of cereal, so. I don't really have anything. But uh, so the next question was, if the zombie apocalypse happened today, what would be your weapon of choice? Um, that is a good question. Um, maybe, maybe some sort of a, man i don't know some sort of a melee weapon right like a an axe or some sort of like um hmm. yeah maybe some sort of axe or hat, hatchet or something like that you could use um, for other purposes as well and make it uh you know more versatile hmm. probably I don't, something that doesn't run out of uh ammunition yeah yeah yes yeah, i think weapon i think guns would be a bad idea because it loud and of course you're limited on ammo so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i'm gonna go with axe axe yes and you can always cut wood and start fires and stuff too so yeah exactly multi multi-use breaking breaking through windows doors yeah yeah there you go. and uh so the next question was what was your first job my first job i my dad owned a um fencing business um, so um, building fences and during the summer when I was in high school, I worked with him during the summers building fences. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What was that experience like? It was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, got to spend time with my dad, um, got to be outside, um, which was sometimes a good thing, sometimes a bad, uh, I grew up in Colorado. And so in Colorado, it's either, in my opinion, it's either like, blizzards or it's like 100 degrees so um there's very few days that are just like enjoyable it's usually like one or the other um and uh so you had to break the elements you know to get the fence done um but it was fun you know it had the nail guns and stuff which you know as, as a kid was like oh this is so cool using it um okay. but then you also had to lug the concrete and the 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 lumber and stuff like that it was tough work it was tough um but i loved it it was fun and like I said, I got to spend time with my dad and yeah, bond. Right. 
there's a lot of uh, a lot of skills you learn with a job like that just like essentially construction type stuff you know you learn mm-hmm. a lot about putting things together and you know steps to get things done and it's i think it's a good good thing to do for sure for sure so the, the last question i have for you is is there a, if roles were if roles were reversed was there a question that you would have asked if, that i didn't ask hmm. um not that i can think of the questions are good you always have like i said i, I watched i watched your channel for for a bit and like you always have good questions yeah. like I, able I, to keep yeah. the conversation going it's good well I, I try to mix them up and try to get ideas so i was trying to yeah. keep them keep them fresh and kind of you know uh tailor them to who i'm talking to so it's always good and i i was looking up your bio i was trying to find your bio and trying to find like your history i had no idea you were a screenwriter so yeah here, you know what? I, I do have I do have a good question that that I'd like to hear other authors answer when you talk to them. Is if you were a character in your book, would you survive your book? Would you survive? Mm. Yeah, I like that one. Let me write that. Let me type that in. Yeah. And my answer in my books would probably be no, because no, yeah, <laughs> they're far too deadly. <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) So uh, if uh, someone wants to find you or connect with you online, where's the best place to find you? Um, Instagram and Twitter are probably the two best places. Yeah. And I will leave all all your links uh, down below for uh, Amazon, Twitter, Instagram, all that fun stuff so people can can, uh, get in touch with you and find your your work. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. So thanks again. I know you're you're busy and have a lot to do. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come by and chat and chat about books and movies and screenwriting and have me ask you a bunch of questions. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. This was fun. Love talking about books. Love talking about movies. So um, yeah, anytime. I appreciate it. Right on. Yeah, let's do it again soon. Let me know. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Time. Awesome. All right, for sure. Well, thanks again. And thanks, everybody. All right. Thank you.